Okay, good. All right, I want to promise you it's not a magic trick. It's probably going to be very underwhelming uh, when you see what it is. So um, what I have put under this bottle or under this thing here is a giant bottle of Coca-Cola. All right, so I put that here on purpose because I want to create a, a little bit of like curiosity, a little bit of wonder, like what's, what's going on? What is that thing about? Because uh, I want to tell you a little short story about Coca-Cola. So in 1985, the Coca-Cola company entered into its 15th year of a market share slide. So in other words, their competitors had been slowly gaining on them. Consumer preference and awareness of Coca-Cola was waning. So Coca-Cola got smart, right? And they said, well, let's bring in some consultants. Let's see how we can improve our brand and improve our company. So the consultants came in, and they drew a box on the board like this. And they said, in one word, what defines this company? So what did Coca-Cola write in the box? Well, it seemed like a pretty simple answer. They said, well, we're all about taste. So they put taste in the box. And then they went to work with the help of these consultants, and they did over 200,000 taste tests. And they came up with a brand new formula of Coke which has now gone down uh, as a day of marketing infamy and blunder because they released this product called Coke 2, or New Coke. Does anybody remember? Okay. Some of you remember. You remember what happened? It bombed. People hated it. People freaked out. There were actually people that went to the store and started hoarding the original version of Coke. One man even reported having 900 bottles stored up in his basement. There were protest groups that started. One was called Society for the Preservation of the Real Thing. Another one started that said Old, Cold, Old Cola Drinkers of America. Right? The, this group actually recruited, they said, 100,000 people to join their cause to bring back the original Coke. <laughs> so they, they wrote songs about it. Protests popped up. There was a protest in Atlanta where people were carrying signs that said, we want the real thing. Our children will never know refreshment. (laughs) So it really bombed bad. So Coca-Cola got together. They went back to the drawing board. They erased what was in the box, and they decided to re-strategize. They fired those consultants, and what they ended up putting in the box was tradition. So on July 11th, 1985, Coca-Cola put the end to the 79-day journey of New Coke, uh, and they released what has become known to us now as Coca-Cola Classic. So that July day, the story of returning to the old Coca-Cola, because it was the first change they had made in 99 years to Coca-Cola. So they went back to this, and it was so big of a statement that two of the leading news broadcast stations picked it up, and virtually every front-page newspaper said, Coke is going back to the real thing. <laughs> See, what happened with Coca-Cola is they realized that what they had all along was something more than a soft drink. They had something that had greater value. They had something in their tradition that somehow they had sort of wandered away from or forgotten about. And in learning that and in going through that process, they rediscovered that they had something beautiful that was built in those 99 years. And if they just leaned into it a little bit more, it could bring the company back. And now today, Coke is in its 125th year of business because they woke up to their tradition. They woke up to what they had all along. 
So today, we're going to begin in, in Luke chapter 2. We're just going to look at seven verses in the chapter of Luke. And this is what we call one of the Christmas stories. It's a tradition for us to read it and look at it. But if we're not careful, not paying attention to this tradition can actually cause us to get a little bored with these church stories that we do the same time every year. So my hope today as we talk about this story is we uncover some of the tradition that's associated with Luke chapter 2, and that out of that, it would wake our faith up. It would cause us to go, oh, we have something really beautiful here, something that we can lean into. So let's wake our faith up a little bit today as we learn a little bit more about this story. So let's read it together real quick. So I'll read it to you. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So how many of you have heard that story before? Okay, so how many of you have heard it at least 10 times? All right, 20 times. 30 times. Come on, we've got some saints in here. It's all right. How about 40? All right, we've got a lot. It's so out there. You've read it so many times that you can read those seven verses very quickly and go, okay, we can get some of the basics of the story, right? There was a census that was ordered by Caesar Augustus. Quirinius was the governor of Syria at the time. Joseph takes Mary and goes to Bethlehem. Mary goes into labor. The inn was full, so Jesus is born. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid into a manger. We know that story pretty well, right? You could probably tell it very quickly. But there is a whole lot more captured in that story than sometimes I think we realize. So I want to go a little deeper because this story is actually the culmination of thousands of years of belief in God. Untold numbers of people had looked forward to this day coming and what we just read in less than a minute. They had put their faith in God that this story was going to happen. Jesus even refers back, and he's talking a little bit about himself, but he says, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see but did not see it, to hear what you hear but did not hear it. So I want to rehear this story together. So there's three things I want to talk about uh, that I think will help wake us up to what's in this story. So the first thing is where. Where is this story happening? Some of you know the answer, right? Well, you know, it's, it's in Bethlehem, oh, little town of Bethlehem, how sweet we see you lie, or whatever the words are, right? Probably messed that up. But there is a history to the city of Bethlehem, and I want to I walk you through it a little bit. So how well do you really know Bethlehem? How well? Have you ever studied it? That's what popped into my head when I started looking into this passage for this week. So this is a picture of modern-day Bethlehem. Uh, it's obviously a lot bigger than it used to be, but the landscape of Bethlehem is that it was located about five miles outside of Jerusalem. It actually sits in a very important place. To the east side of Bethlehem is the desert land where nomads and people who were in trouble could go seek refuge. To the west side was fertile farming soil. It was a, a land where they could graze sheep and goats. They could use the valleys where they would cultivate crops for cereals and vineyards and olive and fig orchards. It was a pretty remarkable place as far as topography and the way it looks. 
But one other thing you need to know about Bethlehem is very similar to Millville's claim to fame is that Mike Trout is from Millville, right? We all know that. Like, that's all over the place. We know Mike Trout is from, from right around here, just a few miles away. So when you start looking at Bethlehem, Bethlehem actually has a notable collection of people that were a part of it. So let me walk you through some of these people. Anybody remember who Rachel is? It's the wife of Jacob, one of the patriarchs way back. We sing songs to the God of Jacob. It's a huge deal. She actually died just outside of Bethlehem, and the traditional site of her grave is actually where the entrance of Bethlehem stands. It's a pretty remarkable thing. So people would say, oh, Rachel was near Bethlehem. It's actually the place where the concubine scandal at the end of Judges happens. So you guys remember that story? It's a pretty gross story where something bad happens to this young lady, and so to try to bring everybody together, the, the husband chops her up into pieces and sends her out to all the tribes. He says, we're too broken. We need to come back together. The concubine scandal happened at Bethlehem. There's this guy named Elimelech and his wife Naomi. Some of you know them is that uh, they are the, like the parents of, or the in-laws of a woman named Ruth uh, who comes back, and out of Ruth comes these group of guys right here, Boaz, Obed, Edom, and a guy named Jesse. Anybody remember who Jesse is? This is one of the questions I failed on my Old Testament test in college because I just was that dumb. I was like, who's Jesse? Like, I have a cousin named Jesse. <laughs> but Jesse is the father of David. Bethlehem is actually David's hometown. That's a significant deal. So when David is, is ruling, Bethlehem is actually a strategic military site. They wanted to make sure that it was done really, really well because of the access it had and the resources that it had uh, things to. And so one of the campaigns that David was going at, um, he said, I really wish I could get some water from the well of Bethlehem. And if you know that story, these three guys, Josheb, Bashibeth, Eleazar, and Shammah, they go on a war quest to bring David back a cup of water. These are his three mighty men. So he brings back the cup of water. And you know what he does? He's like, oh, you guys, I'm so sorry that my selfishness made you go get that. I can't drink it. And he dumped it out on the ground. I'll be like, at least give it to the guys. Like, you know, anyway, that's one of those guys. And then David's uh, grandson, Rehoboam, comes along. And because of the military importance of Bethlehem, he actually fortified that city. But things started to change. The kingdom of Israel splits in two, and we see hosts and hosts of evil kings take over to the point where Israel and Judah are cast off into exile, and other people possess this land. And then the events unfold after that where Bethlehem declines, and by the 8th century before Christ, it was completely unimportant. And then along comes this little prophet from a small country town. Uh, his name is Micah. And he gives us a little more insight into Bethlehem. He says, you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. That's a pretty powerful statement, right? So this amazing city with all these people connected to it has now been reduced to almost nothing. Now, when you read that, though, it kind of sounds like, well, Bethlehem's not really a part of Judah. It's not a part of anything. But a couple other verses kind of help us see a little more of what the context is because it's a little hard to translate that part. But Bethlehem is little among the thousands in Judah. It's a really small place. It's very small among the clans. Uh, a scholar around this uh, that researched Bethlehem in small towns was a guy named uh, W.F. Albright. But he said Bethlehem was probably around 300 people for a village of that size. And they probably had six or seven kids under the age of one around the time of Jesus. 
So that's what's taking place. So Bethlehem is this little tiny, used to be cool place that's now become very insignificant. It's just a little speck on the map outside of Jerusalem. So what brings us to Bethlehem? What brings us to Bethlehem is this great thing that we all know about called a census. Right? They wanted to count up the people. So it says, in those days, uh, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And so all went to be registered, each to his own town. So because I don't have any uh, photographs of ancient Bethlehem, I started looking around. I was actually looking at census data to try to find out where is a close town to here uh, that has about 300 people. There are no 300 people towns in New Jersey. Um, so I had to go outside New Jersey. I went all the way to West Virginia um, on the map, not personally, but uh, there's a little place called Albright, West Virginia. It has 299 people. So it kind of looks about like this. So imagine Bethlehem maybe kind of looking about that size. Now, one of the things that, that Albright actually has every year is they have this amazing music festival. So thousands and thousands of people show up on this town. All these people come. <laughs> Right? And they line up for miles, and they set up tents and everything. So can you imagine, with all of the, the bigness and significance that Bethlehem had, how many people would have roots back to Bethlehem? And now the census is given, and everybody that has roots in Bethlehem has to go back. So I don't think there was like a planned out thing like, hey, next year at this time, get prepared because Quirinius is going to issue a thing, and everybody's got to go, so like build some hotels and get ready. I think it was on a whim, and he just did it. And so everybody that had to go back to Bethlehem descends on this tiny little town. So if you were on your way there, it was probably the fastest donkey wins lodging. It was that kind of thing. Like, there's no website reserved discount priceline.com rooms. There's no call-ahead seating for reservations. Whoever got there first got spaces to stay. So when you go into this census, and you start looking a little deeper into it, uh, John Calvin actually suggests something very specific about this sentence, and I want to share it with you. He says, Augustus orders a registration to take place in Judea, and each person to give his name, so that uh, they may afterwards pay an annual tax, which they were formerly accustomed to paying to God. So in this census, what they were originally, the Jewish people were paying to God and were giving into the temple, is now being taken away to Roman rule. So thus an ungodly man takes forcible possession of that which God was accustomed to demand from his people. It was, in effect, reducing the Jews to entire subjection and forbidding them to be thenceforth reckoned as the people of God. So this is not just a census to count up how many people are around. This is an attempt to wipe out the Jewish heritage, to wipe out their faith, to basically signature by signature as they register to erase the people of God from history. It's a big deal. See, the Jews are in this place because they broke the covenant. They had an agreed-upon set of consequences with God on Mount Sinai, and they broke it. And they're living out these consequences. Micah actually said it uh, in verse 3, uh, but he says, they shall, um, well, we'll look at that in a second. Uh, so in verse 3, it says, um, God will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. See, they're living out the consequence. They're living out this prophecy, even in this census. It's such a big deal. 
So you have this little town of Bethlehem that has roots to the patriarchs, ties to the scandal of judges. There's redemption of a relative's uh, status in the story of Ruth. It's a place that's the birthplace of the royal line of the people of God that became a strategic outpost. And now all of that history is vanishing, each person registering in the census. But it's out of this little place that Micah speaks some very strong things here. He says, but out of you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me, being God, one who is to be ruler in Israel. So though you're insignificant, though you're small, though in that place it looks like darkness is winning and everything is vanishing, it's in that moment when it looks most dark and most bleak that God's going to do something amazing. And we know what happens, right? We know that that king that was to be born in Bethlehem, who was to do all these things that Micah talks about, we know his name is Jesus. They didn't really know that at the time. We have the benefit of being able to look back and see the history of that. But before we talk a little bit about Jesus, I want to talk about another who in the story. So who? This is the third one. I want to talk about Joseph. I am totally stunned by the lack of commentary and attention that's given to Joseph in this story, especially this verse right here, verse 4 and 5. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Like, almost every commentary I read on this just kind of said, yeah, that's Joseph, and then they moved on. Like, there's so much attention given to Mary in this story, and rightfully so. She is carrying the child of God. Uh, we should pay attention to that. But Joseph became like almost this like laughingstock of a footnote. Like, why would this guy bring his pregnant wife down to Bethlehem? What a moron. Like, he couldn't even get there on time to get a room. Like, I've, I've literally heard people talk about Joseph like he's kind of some goofball. And we give a lot of attention to Mary. I was, I was joking with our worship leaders, but get like that song, like, Mary, did you know? Right? I guess goes, yes, she knew. <laughs> the answer is yes. The angel told her. All right? So if you ever hear that song, anyway. So we give a lot of attention in the, in the other regards to other people and other situations in the story, but I want to give some specific attention to Joseph because there's a couple things in this verse that it says. It says, one, that he was from the lineage of David. Like, that's pretty easy to get. We say, okay, so he's somehow related to David somewhere along the line. Like, he's got some kind of connection. So just to help you understand this, so my wife's maiden name is Keller, uh, and because her last name is Keller, uh, sometimes the question jokingly comes up, well, are you related to Helen Keller? Well, you want to know the answer? Yes. Some cousin way back in the line who had the last name Keller married somebody with the Keller name so that the Kellers and the Kellers got together and became this thing. So somewhere distantly related, I can't even draw it for you, but somewhere distantly related through marriage, my wife is related to Helen Keller, and now by marriage, I am too. Awesome. That means absolutely nothing, right? So we look at Joseph, and we say, well, he's from the lineage of David. Whoop-de-doo. Let's move on. But it says something else very specific about this, is that Joseph was also from the house of David. It's a totally different deal to have your lineage be connected to the house of the king. This is not some distant 15th cousin once removed 500 times or whatever we say. This is a blood relative of King David in Joseph. It's significant. Matthew 1 lays it all out for us in the genealogy. We have Joseph and you can go all the way back up the line, 27 generations later, to David. 
It's a significant thing. But if we go back one more verse in Matthew, there's something very specific it says about David that I want you to see this. King David. If Joseph is the 27th generation blood relation to King David, if things had gone a little differently, if the people had repented and turned to God again, Joseph might have actually sat on that throne. That's the guy that's entering Bethlehem with Mary. He's no footnote in history. He's no blundering idiot that didn't know how to get a donkey to move fast enough. See, if you were of the house of David, you stood next to be in line for the king. And I can't imagine for a moment that Joseph didn't know that history. I can't imagine that it caught him by surprise. Like he didn't need ancestry DNA to tell him where he came from. But I also think if we're honest about the history of the kingly lines of David, I think Joseph was aware of that too. Like they're the ones that led the people into this place. There's a list of them. There are 33 evil kings that come after Solomon. There were only six godly kings. So here you have Joseph, 27 generations after David. He's in the house of David. He's been reduced from kingly status and royal status all the way to poor carpenter status. But if we were to change the name of the song and go from Mary did you know to Joseph did you know, the answer is also yes. We're going to go to Matthew for just a moment, Matthew chapter 1. But after Joseph had considered this, of divorcing Mary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and he said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Joseph woke up, and he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. And then nine months later, they come into Bethlehem. And there's a lot of, pro- there's a lot of scholars and a lot of people that will say there is absolutely no reason for Joseph to have brought Mary down to Bethlehem being so pregnant. Well, I disagree. I think the reason that Joseph brought Mary is because he was being obedient to what was revealed to him. It didn't say, whenever the baby's born, just make sure the name of Jesus is given to him. The angel told Joseph, you are to give him that name. I would imagine the conversation went something like, listen, Mary, I know that you're almost due. The time's getting close, but we've got to do this on the census. I cannot be out of your sight because when that baby comes, I have to do what the angel told me to do, and I have to say out loud, his name is Jesus. Joseph's just trying to obey what was revealed to him. I really believe that that's what's going on. So when you see it in uh, John the Baptist when he's born, it's Jesus' cousin, they kept, like, his, the mom said, well, his name's John, but nobody believed her. Like, no, oh, there's nobody in your family named John. So they give it to Zechariah who can't speak, and he writes it on the tablet. And he says, his name is John. And then from there, his mouth opens, and he says, his name is John. 
It's supposed to come, like the name was supposed to come from the leader of that household. I think Joseph's operating in faith and trust that he's going to do what God told him to do. Because I also believe that Joseph knows the history that's been promised. So when Mary gives birth to Jesus and Joseph speaks the name upon him, all of this becomes a reality. All the way from 2 Samuel. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them. It's the kingdom of God. So that they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, speaking, this is Nathan speaking to David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Remember Joseph's part of that house? So when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, he says, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. It's not just talking about Solomon here. It's the prophecy about Jesus. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So it says when he commits iniquity, the New Testament tells us that Jesus became sin. So if you insert that word here, it lines up with Jesus perfectly. That when Jesus becomes iniquity for us, he takes the rod of discipline. By his stripes we are healed with the stripes that are put on the man. By my steadfast love, it will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's out of Joseph's obedience to doing what God told him to do in connection with Mary's obedience to what the angel revealed that the king finally comes. This is some of the significance and the weight of this story that we can so quickly miss because we're thinking about the end and not enough space. So when the king comes, the brothers return. He stands and he shepherds his flock in the strength of the Lord. The majesty of the name of the Lord is on him. There's security promised that we will dwell with God forever. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. This connection of Jesus and Joseph all the way back to David is actually a cornerstone of the gospel. There are almost, almost every presentation of the gospel in the New Testament makes, makes, a, excuse me, makes a specific point about this connection. Paul even put it this way to Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. You don't find gospel presentations that don't make an Old Testament connection. It's huge. So that's a lot, right? You understand Bethlehem? You understand the context of the census? You understand the connection of Joseph in the story? So let's ask the hard question, right? So, so what? <laughs> How does that matter today? It's from this little insignificant town where the faith of a forgotten carpenter becomes reality. As the hymn says, his faith became sight. See, Bethlehem 
moves from history and imagination and centuries of speculation to a real and concrete place where a real, ruling, reigning, alive king comes. They were sure of what they, were hope, they hoped for. They were certain of what they didn't see. And for centuries and centuries, people had longed for this day to come. And it's from Bethlehem, whose name is translated the house of bread, that the bread of life, Jesus, is born into the world for us. The king has finally arrived. And what the king does is this. Paul's talking here in Romans. He says that the mystery that was kept secret for long ages has now been disclosed. We see it. And that mystery is to bring about the obedience of faith. What's the mystery? Is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body of people as the Jewish people and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This story, this Christmas story, is the beginning of salvation becoming open to us. Previously, it was reserved for the Jews and anybody that would convert to Judaism. Now God's thrown the doors open in Christ and says, all who believe have the right to be called children of God. That's how this matters for us. Their faith says, when will the king king arrive? Our faith now says, how is this mystery going to finish playing out? Their faith would say, what will it be like when the Messiah comes? Ours question now is, what will it be like when he comes back again and brings the kingdom? These are big things that are connected to Luke chapter 2. So when we take the time and we consider it, it's from this story that the gospel starts to take shape. So let me ask the hard question. Do you believe it? You might know it. You might hear it, but do you believe it? Do you believe that that little baby grows up to be crucified? That out of that crucifixion, he conquers death and promises that death won't keep you forever either. That all starts... Mary and Joseph being obedient to God. They were obedient to their faith. So this story, as I said at the beginning, is a call for us to wake our faith up. Not just passively go through another Christmas season, but to say, you know what? Like, I really get that. Like, that's the birth of my king who is still alive today. It's huge. It calls for awakening of faith. We see the faith of the one that was promised. (laughs) We see it happen. So when you think about it, with all the chaos going around around Bethlehem, it looks like darkness is winning. It looks like a nation is now destroying the people of God for their own gain. But in all of the situations and all of the circumstances that are happening right there, God orchestrates it so salvation enters the world. Do you have that kind of faith? It's a call for that kind of faith. That when it all looks awful and you think it's all going to fall apart, say, no, I'm trusting in God. See, it's a faith that says, even though there may seem something in my life that's little or insignificant compared to everybody else's, hope can come from that. It's a faith that says, even though it looks like darkness might win, 
My God is on the move. It's a faith that says, my life can be very, very hard, but there is hope in Jesus. It's a faith that says, my circumstances might look humble. They might look even pretty crappy, like being born in a manger where there's animal poop all around. But God has a plan. It's a faith that says, even though you feel like you're stuck in a cave, isolated from everyone else, there's still a new room for you in the kingdom of God around the corner. It's a faith that says, even though sin has wrecked your life, it has wrecked your family, it has wrecked generations that have gone before you, that righteousness is provided in Christ and it will, sin will not ultimately win. It's a faith that says, even though there is temptation, God is making a way. It's a faith that says, even though you feel like an outcast, God is still in charge of leading your life. It's a faith that says, there's no room for me and it feels like I'm pushed aside but at the same time, God is orchestrating something far more beautiful than you can even imagine. It's a faith that says, yes, I'm broken, but restoration is possible. It's a faith that says, I have a lot of confusion, but God has total clarity. It's a faith that says, sometimes I feel hopeless, but Jesus is your peace. It's a faith that says, you will be pressed on every side, but you will not be crushed. It's a faith that says, even though you feel poor in spirit, Jesus will reward your faith. It's a faith that says, even though I fail, grace will prevail. See, those are truths that flow out of Luke chapter 2. We've got to grasp this story again, friends. We've got to wake up to what the tradition of that story is, because if we will lean into it, there's something brand new and beautiful that God wants to do that's going to result in many more days and many more years to come until Jesus finally comes back, where our faith wakes up, and just like Mary and Joseph, we put action to that faith. We follow what it tells us to do. It's a significant thing. So I'm going to have, have a couple people, they're going to come, they're going to read the story again. We're actually going to read Luke chapter 2 uh, together again. I skipped a couple things here. Sorry. Let's go ahead and put up that Advent reading, okay? There we go. They're going to read Luke chapter 2. I'm going to ask you to stand because we're going to read it together. And as you listen and as you read this story, go ahead, come on, come on. Yeah, let the weight and let the truth of this story, you guys can come on over here. Let the weight and the truth of this story just rest upon your heart. Feel the intensity of it on your soul. We just unpacked it quite a bit. Because it's out of this little insignificant place, this tiny little story that the gospel becomes a reality. It moves from hope to concrete. So let that settle on your soul as we read it together. Let's read the scripture together. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to register, each to his own town. And Joseph also went out from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, 
who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. You guys can have a seat. Let me give you some more time to let the weight of that sit in. I want to draw your attention to this third question here. It's kind of what I did there at the end. But make a list that says, even though this is going on, God has promised this, or God will do this. So let me give you a few minutes to sit with this. Let your faith wake up. So call out to God in the time of trouble, but then let him answer you with his word. Let him answer you with truth. So take a minute, work on question number three, and then Lois and her team are going to lead us in a time of worship to close our service.